0: Pull out your Bible, please, as you're getting settled there. Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, ushers are already down the aisles here. We want you to have a Bible in your hand. Just raise your hand, they'll, they'll get you a Bible. And um, we are, it's kind of a big moment right now in our, in our study and in our life um, as a church. You might realize that for just over a year now, a year and two months, we have had the immense privilege as a church of preaching through this incredible book of Romans. And today is the day where we sort of bring to a close the first major section of Romans. Romans 1 through 11 is considered one major section. And then when we come back in the new year, we'll start 12. And that's sort of to the end of the book, a really practical section. But so we're it's kind of a big moment. We we come to the end of Paul's argument and I want to start a little different today. I want to show you where Paul is going to end this whole conversation. So I want to just read to you the last five verses of Romans 11 and and I want cuz I my goal is that by the end of this service as a church we will end this the way Paul ends it. So we look at it with me, Romans 11 verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Inscrutable just means you cannot figure it out. (laughs) How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. That's where Paul's gonna end. That's where we're going. Here's what I want you to realize. As Paul brings to the close... This profound, complex, deep, rich explanation that's taken him 11 chapters trying to explain to the church the mystery and the marvel of God's way and the gospel and how God is bringing salvation beyond the original people of God, Israel, to the entire globe, to all people groups. And as Paul finally wraps up this entire conversation, his heart erupts and he begins praising God. And it's amazing. It's one of the great hymns of worship we have in our church. It's called a doxology. Maybe you've heard that word. That paragraph I just read is a doxology. And a doxology is just an eruption of worship in the form of a short hymn. It's often unplanned. It's often spontaneous. It's often involuntary. You could try to stop it, but I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) You get to that moment where you encounter a deep truth about God, or maybe many deep truths about God, things about God's way. A revelation happens, and you find your heart bursting and you have to worship God has this ever happened to you it's amazing when it happens and i see it happening in our church sometimes it's one of the great privileges of ministry is being in the sanctuary and realizing people are there's this spontaneous Desire to just worship God and I see some of you trying to restrain yourself and you start sweating and you shouldn't do that It's bad for your emotional health. All right when you want to scream. Amen. Just do it. Okay It's good for the soul if you want to stand up and worship don't suppress that you're gonna hurt your back Okay, you need to worship it happened to me in my life as a young Christian in the most unexpected of circumstances I was just getting started out in the ministry and Young Life that I was doing ministry with, they sent me to Colorado Springs for a training. It was Christmas time, probably right about this time of year snowing in Colorado Springs, I was staying in a hotel in downtown Colorado Springs. Sunday morning, I wake up, I wanna go to church, I don't know where to go, I don't have a car, so I just walk out the hotel door, I walk into downtown Colorado Springs, and I went into the very first church I found, First Presbyterian Church, Colorado Springs. And there I am sitting in the church, and i, I, I wasn 't raised in in a Presbyterian church. I had been worshipping most recently at something more like River West, so the Presbyterian way of worship was new to me, but i 'm sitting there, and it was a big church, and there were lots of people there and in fact, the, the seat that I was ushered to was right up in the front row. Has that ever happened to you? super awkward you 're new I get, and, it's, and not only that, it was one long aisle, and they made me walk all the way down so i 'm sitting right in the middle. And I remember the pastor preaching a sermon on the mystery of the incarnation and the birth of Christ fully god fully human in you know in frail humanity and I remember thinking this is so profound and as the sermon ended and that truth captured my heart the choir came up and they started singing this hymn and I just lost control of my emotions and I just raised my hands and I was worshiping in the Presbyterian church and they weren't singing like, how great is our God? They were singing something like, let all mortal flesh keep silent, something like that. And I'm like, I don't care. And I'm just worshiping God, and I'm, I'm weeping. And then I come to my senses, and I look around, and I'm in the front row. <laughs> and I look over, and there's this precious old Presbyterian lady, and she just looks at me lovingly, and she put her hand on my hand, and then this is what she did. She, she opened up her hand like this, and she worshiped. That's Presbyterian Pentecostalism right there, people. That's as far as they go. The Frozen Chosen. She was like, I'm just gonna worship with you. She was like, it's okay, you worship Jesus, buddy. And I worshiped God, amen? Has that ever happened to you? Why in the world would we ever wanna suppress a moment when God captures our heart with something deep and we think, I gotta worship Jesus? And what I wanna do, to do, what I wanna do today is I want to preach an entire sermon about that moment. That moment when truth turns into worship. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk to you about that moment when the logic stops and the loud singing begins. When Paul, he, his analysis and his argument are done and he turns to adoration, the pen goes down and the heart and the eyes go up. Because let me tell you something, folks, that right there, that is actually what worship is. Biblical worship is that moment. Thank you. Let's go, baby. This is, it's on now, it's on. I want you to think about a coin with two sides, theology and doxology. Theology is what we know and believe about God, and doxology is how we worship him. And here's the thing, don't ever separate those. They always go together, amen? You cannot have doxology without theology, You can't just start worshiping a God you don't know anything about. Now, anyone can stand up and stir up a crowd into emotionalism, but the worship that happens in that setting is not a worship where people are tapping into something, or better yet, someone who's actually deep and firm and solid and concrete and logical, which is who God is. You gotta know about God, and then that will spur your worship of God. But on the other hand, you can't have theology that never turns into doxology. There's something wrong about turning church into an intellectual exercise, where all we do is think deeply and take copious notes. And I love all of that, and I want that for you. But there's something wrong about this cool, logical, scientific, studious approach to comprehending God. If the pen never goes down and I fall on my knees and say, God, I just worship you. So we need them both. You'll know you've encountered God and His depth when your heart erupts in worship. And that's what Paul wants to teach us this morning. And so as he brings to chapter 11 to the close, he's going there. So let's, let's see now what, what got him there because Paul's got a few more things in his argument. So look, I left off last week at verse 24, so now look at your Bible. I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach through 25 to 32, but we're going somewhere. Paul's taking us somewhere. He's not just saying, I'm gonna make an amazing argument and then I'm gonna stop. The argument is gonna turn into adoration and we gotta do it this morning. Here's what Paul says next. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, just stop for a minute and let me remind you where we're at. So Paul, again, Paul's concerned here and he talked about it last Sunday. He's concerned about a certain posture of our hearts that does not fit with the gospel. He's been talking primarily to Gentiles, you remember? And he's been saying to those Gentiles, protect your hearts from pride and arrogance in all of this flow of history where the people of Israel, by and large, have turned their backs on Messiah. You gotta watch out that your heart does not get off. And here, if you look at the first phrase of verse 25, see that, lest you be wise in your own sight. What Paul's talking about here is a kind of arrogance that involves an overinflated view of my own wisdom or insight. And it's very dangerous. When we start to have a false sense or fantasy images about how much we know, how deep we are, how smart we are, especially when it comes to the things of God, nothing will squench, squench, squelch, quench and squelch, squench, anyway, nothing will stifle your worship like an overinflated view of your own wisdom you'll start thinking, I'm pretty amazing. So what's the cure? Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware of a mystery. And and we've been talking about this mystery now for a couple weeks, so Paul's now going to repeat this boomerang, remember? So here's what he says. Here's the mystery, sisters and brothers. There's been a partial hardening of Israel until what? until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then look what he says next in verse 26a. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is astounding. And Paul says, it's a mystery. What will protect you from arrogance is to realize how mysterious this plan is. Now we use the word mystery to describe things that we can't figure out, right? Like, why do people put pineapple on a pizza? It's a mystery to me. (laughs) Why did we invent decaf coffee? It makes no sense. It's a mystery. But that's not the way Paul uses the word mystery. Paul uses the word mystery to describe a secret way of God that was veiled and now has been revealed in the gospel. And Paul says, "I'm I'm giving I'm revealing to you a mystery about how God's working." And Paul says, "It's this boomerang of salvation that sweeps the entire the entire people group of Earth into God's plan, every tribe, every tongue, every nation." It starts with Israel, the original chosen people of God. And through their disobedience, through their hardening, partial hardening, temporary, salvation shoots out away from Israel. And like a boomerang, it sweeps in non-Israelites, Gentiles. For how long? You see where there, verse 25? How long does this happen? Until... Until the full amount, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's how long this will take in human history. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. According to who? Who's the one who decides? Now think about this. Who gets to decide when that has happened? The Gentiles? The Jewish people? God has a plan, folks. And he's at work. And that boomerang is already on its way home. Paul says, revel in this mystery. And it is a mystery. It's, I mean, just think about how mysterious this is. He says in verse 26a, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. That statement is unbelievably mysterious because we have no idea, like, how is that gonna happen? Like, what does that even mean? All Israel will be saved? Paul, what are you talking about? And Christians have uh, debated. There's lots of different opinions about this. By the way, in a moment, I'm I'm gonna say the point of this was never to create debates, okay, about Israel. The point of this was for people to worship, right? That's what we're doing, we're worshiping. But there's lots of different views. Some people say this has already happened, that when Paul's using the word Israel, he's using that word to describe the new Israel, which is the church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile. And if you hold that view... Um, I'm fine with that view. I personally don't think it's the the best overall view of the text. I definitely think Paul's looking forward to something bigger than that. Some people think that what will happen is as, as the gospel continues to spread, we're gonna start to see this movement, this increasing movement among the ethnic Jewish people in our world where more and more people who are ethnically Jews come to Christ. And that's a perfectly... Um, good interpretation, I think what's happening here is that Paul is describing an end time event. He's describing something that's going to happen at the moment that Christ returns. That something about the return of Christ is going to trigger this worldwide revival. And the reason I believe that is, look at verse 26, Paul says, all Israel will be saved as it is written, look at this, The deliverer will come from Zion. That's Jesus. That's a prediction of the second coming of Christ. And when he comes, he'll banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's ethnic Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul seems to be describing this moment when the Deliverer returns. He takes away the sin of Israel. They believe in Jesus as Messiah, and there's this global conversion to Christ. And when that happens, it will be the greatest party the world has ever known. As Gentiles, the entire ethnic people groups of the world are reunited with the original covenant people of God in a global movement. Amazing. And Paul says, but here's the point. The point of all this is that you would worship. The point is not to try to figure it out. The point is not to create timelines. The point is to worship God. Paul never got disturbed by things about God that he couldn't completely figure out. And it never stopped him from worshiping. And it doesn't have to stop you from worshiping. You come in here and you sit through a sermon and I know what it's like. Some of you are new to church and you come in here and you sit, think, you sit through a sermon and you think, I don't understand three quarters of what that guy just said. This is so complex. I get it. Just keep coming back. But the parts of it that capture you when we get to the end of the service, I want you to stand up and worship Jesus for what, what he's revealed to you. Amen. Amen. You don't have to understand God to worship God. If you understand God completely, you won't worship him because that will be a God of your own creation. But the God we cannot cannot comprehend is the kind of God I personally want to fall down and worship. Paul says, there's one more thing I got to tell you about all this plan. He goes, there's even something else that's super important. So now let me read you 28 33. As regards the gospel, they, that is the ethnic Israel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. You see, mercy, Paul's doing something with mercy here, okay? And this is really I mean, if you're sitting there thinking, I've got this figured out, no problem, move on, okay? You're a lot smarter than anyone else in the room. That is very complex. What is Paul doing with all this? Everyone's consigned to disobedience so that everyone can receive mercy. What is happening? Here's what I think is going on in this passage, and it's actually, it's so profound, and it's so beautiful. If you get this, you're just gonna wanna worship Jesus. Paul is saying, any Possibility for boasting gets silenced by the way that God spreads his mercy. Any possibility. He goes, the, 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 the ethnic Jewish people of God were they were prone to look down on their Gentile neighbors. They were prone to look down on them and say, We are the people of God. We have a special claim to God through our ethnic identity. And Paul says. God's just gonna wipe that away. How does he do it? Look really closely at the wording of verse 31. Verse 31 is the key. So they too have now been disobedient. This is ethnic Israel. They have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. What Paul's doing there is he's saying Gentiles used to be the ones who were disobedient and needed mercy. And because of that, Jewish people would tend to look down on them. So God allowed disobedience to extend to his own people of God to humble them. So that the very people that they used to look down on would now receive mercy from God through their disobedience. This is astounding. And then God says, but be careful Gentiles because you're just as prone to arrogance. I mean, last Sunday, remember? But those branches were broken off. We're now the new grafted in branches. Paul says, watch out. Watch your heart. 2,000 years of a predominantly Gentile church could cause us to forget the rest of the biblical storyline, where we come from and where we're going. And God says, it's all about mercy, closing the mouth of anyone who might boast. This is so beautiful to me. The entire plan is meant to open our eyes to the absolutely breathtaking reality of God's free and sovereign mercy. It's so beautiful, friends. And notice, Paul never treats truth about God simply as something to be known. He doesn't say, I just want you to know this. He says, "No, now I'm gonna set down the pen and I'm gonna worship God. I'm just gonna worship God. Paul says, truth is always a gateway to something else. It's always taking you somewhere. There should never be a community group in our church. There should never be a Bible study. There should never be a sermon preached that does not end in worship because that's the point. And the reason I'm saying this is because I recognize that in a church of our size, there's different kinds of people with different kinds of things that they love about church. Some of you... Some of you absolutely love the truth part. You are like doctrine junkies. You're out there like, like when I preach verse by verse to something, you are just like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And you're like, teach me about infralapsarianism. And I'm like, no, because I don't want the church to shrivel and die. And so, but you're like, teach me, like teach me the deepest doctrines and you love it. You love doctrine and I love doctrine. And some of you are more of the practical side. You love it when the sermon gets super practical. Teach me how to have a better marriage. Teach me how to do well at work. Teach me me how to raise my kids well. And, And I love teaching sermons like that too. So we got different kinds of people. Those who love the deep theology and those who love the practical. And the reality is, Everyone evaluates the sermon based on whether or not their back got scratched right where it itches, right? Oh, that felt so good. He went deep in the theology, and someone was like, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard. And then you're like, next week, oh, he gave me five things to do this week. Oh, I loved that sermon, right? And so which is it? What, what is the purpose of a sermon? Primarily doctrine or primarily practical help? My answer is, It's neither. It's neither, it's something else. You leave a lecture with a page full of notes, oh, and you leave leave a pep talk or a motivational speech with a bunch of stuff you have to do now for God. But that's not a sermon either. A sermon is practical truth that gets you to a place, some point, where the pen goes down, The eyes go up. The heart breaks. And you say, thank you that I don't have to do anything for God because God has done everything for me through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you worship God. Amen? Amen. And that's where Paul's going. So now the doxology. Now, I... I'm not going to like, dissect this hymn, because it's a song. Songs are meant to be sung, not dissected. <laughs> if all we do today is leave understanding the doxology, but we haven't worshiped its doxology, we totally miss the point. But I do want to show you one thing about it. This is high level, and then I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to preach it. OK? Notice. Just kind of look at your Bible, starting in 33 through 36. Every phrase in this hymn, now think about this. Every phrase is designed to draw attention to the vast difference between God and humans. Every phrase. Isn't that amazing? Now, I'll read it, and you, now you Notice. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul just says, God It would be impossible for me to comprehend how much space there is between me and you. You are so big. You are so big. Can I tell you something, folks? The smaller your view of God, the more pathetic your worship will be. No one wants to worship a small God, but as that space expands, through preaching, through studying God's word, through something that God reveals to you, you realize God is so big. What happens is your heart begins to erupt because you realize this is a God worth worshiping. And Paul says, in particular, there's two things about God that, that I think are so important for us to realize. So he focuses on what God knows and what God owns. You see that? Look at verse 33 what god knows and what god owns by the way the answer to both of those questions is everything what god knows and what god owns he says how the oh the depth of the riches that's what god owns and the depth of his wisdom and knowledge that's what god knows paul says it's incredibly deep incredibly deep let me just talk about god's riches real quick and then i'm going to talk about what god knows Doesn't it make sense to us? God is, I mean, God is so rich. He's incredibly rich. His riches are deep. Well, what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is God owns everything. He owns everything, including me, and including you. He owns it all. Anything that's not God, God owns it. That's a lot. Here's one verse, Deuteronomy, This is Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, the Lord your God, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. In other words, everything. He owns everything on earth, every molecule, every flea, every every human, he owns the whole thing. And then you just start going out into the universe. Go as far as you can go, every galaxy, every star, get to the end of the universe where we can no longer see with our most amazing telescopes. And what's beyond that place we can no longer see? I don't know. Baby Yoda, who knows? Who cares? You know what? You know what? Else? what's out there? God owns it, every bit. God owns everything that he has created. And then here's the thing that'll really blow your mind. God even owns the stuff that he hasn't yet created. Because he could create other things. Remember when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? What did he create out of? He created out of a resource for which he had a lot of it, which is nothingness. He created, he took nothing, and he created whatever he wanted to create. Even the greatest human artist cannot do that. You have to have some material resources, not God. If God wants to create something, he can take nothing for which he has a lot of and create. God is incredibly rich. He owns everything. Human wealth is pathetic compared to God. Even the most, well, Elon Musk and everything that Elon Musk, he's the, he's the wealthiest person in the world today. I Googled it. It's amazing. Google, tell you anything you want to know. He's the wealthiest person in the world. Do you know this? Take all of Elon Musk's wealth, it's like, compared to God, it's like a speck of dust on the back of a mite that's on the back of a flea that's on the belly of your dog. That's, that's, like, that's how wealthy Elon Musk is, compared to God. And then, that's not all, because then what Paul's really doing is he's saying, the poorest Christian on the planet is a trillionaire because they have inherited every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. God has just poured out his riches on every believer. And that's just what God owns. Then take what God knows. And again, God knows everything. The depth of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. It's not just, no, it's just, not just facts that God knows. He knows every fact on every Wikipedia page. That's ever, he knows all that, but that kind of information can be totally useless. What God does is he takes knowledge and wisdom and he holds them together in infinite, like, everlastingness. God knows everything. That's why Paul says, oh, how unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are your ways. Paul's saying, like, God, who am I to ever question the way you're doing things? I'm so... I'm so small, I'm so human. My, my faculties are so limited. You know everything, and you're totally wise. Isaiah 55, one of my favorite verses. Some of you know this verse. I'm just gonna put it up on the screen so you can see this. This is so, Isaiah said something very similar to this. He said, this is God speaking, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Listen to this, friends. This is God. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not, your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. This is such an important verse for us. God's saying, I'm not like you. The way I think, my wisdom, my ways... We need to we need to keep that in mind because sometimes I think we can, I think we can think we, we can try to we can try to match God toe to toe. Or we hear a doctrine and we think I don't like that doctrine because that's not the way I would do it. That's not the way I, that doesn't make sense to me, so that cannot be true. Can you imagine the arrogance of that? We hear something taught in the Bible and we think that's probably not true because it's not the way. I would do it. I've been on the planet for just under 50 years. I am like a sliver compared to God. Who am I to question God? God's never needed help. See that? He's never had to ask for a loan for someone so that he has to pay them back, verse 35. God's never asked for help. God's never had to ask for advice, never. Not one point has God thought, I need some advice. That we could be his counselor. God's never been stumped. God's never been surprised. He's never gone, oh, I didn't see that one coming. That's never happened to God. God's never learned anything. God has never had, think about this, we are so unlike God. God's never had an epiphany. You know what an epiphany is? Like the light bulb goes on. This happens to me a lot, because I'm dense, okay? I'm like, "Oh, oh my gosh! That's never happened to God one time. Here's one of my favorite quotes. I love this quote. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God, (laughs) never. He doesn't need us, he doesn't need a loan from me, he doesn't need my advice, he doesn't need my help, he needs my worship, and he gave me Christ. Think about this, Colossians two, verse three, God hid in Christ, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and then Christ moved into your heart by the Spirit. You have at your disposal all of the treasures of God's wisdom in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's worship him today, especially as we head towards Christmas. Let's worship him. Will you bow your heads and I'll read to you the doxology again from this, and then we're just gonna worship the Lord. And so Lord, we make this our prayer. Just pray, say this with me in your heart and your mind as we close this morning. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.